But I also want to pick up on the food angle because uh, Nick have got, and I have got this in common that steak is definitely our favourite uh, food. And hard on the heels of that, you might think not so very different for me, is uh, steak and kidney in a pie or even better in a pudding. A pudding. Um, not for dessert, that, that kind of pudding, you, you realise. I found out on Friday, um, went to Lidl. I don't know if you ever go to Lidl to shop. And I found in Lidl, they've already got all the turkeys in, in their freezers. That's a bit advanced, isn't it? Uh, so I bought one of those um, pre-packaged ones, not a proper bird, but, you know, just one of stuck it in the oven today. And uh, so we had a little taste of Christmas this lunchtime. Um, really good. Actually, really quite good. But that's enough about food, because the, uh, the story around the female, the woman we're going to look at this evening, is actually one of famine, not food. We'll come to that in a bit later. But I, I, do, I have been wondering, slightly off the, off the side of this story, I have been wondering, I wonder if you've ever wondered what Jesus was like when he was six or eight or 10 or 12. We know what he was like at 12. He went to the temple with his parents and uh, they left him behind and he was found having high level conversation with the people at the temple, the priests and so on. So we know that. How much did he know as he was growing up? Can you imagine Mary or Joseph or both of them sitting down by the fire with Jesus on, the, on their lap, say about six, five or six. Most of us can identify that if we've got children or had children or have got grandchildren. And you start to say, I'm going to tell you a story. Can you imagine Jesus' eyebrows going up? There we go again, telling me a story that I already know. <laughs> or did he? So just for a moment, as we do the introduction, a a little bit of theology. Because on the one hand, we know Jesus is the third person of the Trinity, God the Son, God's Son. So in many ways, we know that he was there all the way through back to the Garden of Eden and before in creation. So in one sense, he must have known all of those unpackaging stories that we read about in the the Bible, including the one we're going to look at this evening. And at the time of his bar mitzvah, do you know, I really hadn't put those two things together until this week, that when he was going up to the temple, it's what they call, the Jews call now the bar mitzvah. So there he was at the temple uh, becoming what's uh, the description, the interpretation of that word, the son of the commandments. There he is in the temple. And when his parents, Mary and his stepdad Joseph, find him, this is what he says in Luke chapter 2 and verse 49. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? So there we have the first recorded words from the lips of Jesus, and it's about himself and his relationship with Father God. Something of a pointer towards his eternal and divine nature. But on the other hand, 
we, t- we read in Luke 2 again that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So on the one hand, he must have or might have known everything there was to know. In another sense, he grew in that knowledge over, the lifetime, over his lifetime uh, and was building his life on what he learnt over the years. Perhaps this is what we mean in Philippians chapter 2, by though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, someone who needed to grow in knowledge and wisdom. One writer puts it like this, when Jesus said he didn't know, and there are some incidents about the coming, his second coming, uh, he was speaking according to his human nature. At the same time, according to his divine nature, he withheld what he probably already knew because in his infinite wisdom, he knew it wasn't the right time for this to be revealed to people. So Jesus didn't know. But Jesus did know. He gave up the right, as it were, to know all things in his humanity, whilst he knew all things in his divinity. Tim Keller puts it like this, such are the paradoxes of the incarnation, but rather than repel us by their seeming absurdity, they should invite us to press on into the mystery of Jesus Christ, Son of God and Son of God. Of man. So back to Mary or Joseph with Jesus on, his, on their knee. And Jesus, uh, Mary says, uh, or Joseph says to him, Let me tell you about your great great grandmother. And Jesus, I don't think, would have sighed. Here we go again. Ruth and Boaz. The story of Ruth and Boaz. See, for us, and we're turning to the story of Ruth this evening, it's a book about a romance, about tragedy and triumph, or as I've put it in the past, it's love one, love lost, love one again. And it's a great story and has much to teach us about my mother's namesake, my mum's name, Ruth, as well. This was Ruth, a life of consequence. We're going to hear the first chapter uh, this evening, so I'm going to invite Dara to come and read Ruth chapter 1, the first 18 verses. Thank you. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha, and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Killian also died. 
and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Dara. Well, it's quite a story, isn't it? A story of two weddings and three funerals. A story rooted in actions as a result of a famine and uh, the life of a family unit who'd left the hometown, their home country, their home religion in order to find food. No one, I don't think, could blame Elimelech in some ways for uh, wanting to make sure his family was provided for. He could not have anticipated the disastrous reaction and uh, outcome of his decisions to leave and go to Moab. It was a temporary arrangement. It says in verse 1, went to live for a while, but it turned sour. It could be said that Elimelech, whose name means God is king, had turned his back on his God, at least in part, and hadn't depended upon God to provide for his family in the midst of the famine, but he went abroad, as it were. And at the end of a decade, all that remains were three lonely widows and three graves in a foreign land. But this is a story of hope, not a story of disaster. When things go wrong and God is in control, God will work in the purposes of his people. God is not missing from this traumatic 
set of circumstances. But he's reaching out to Ruth and her sister and Naomi, their mother-in-law. See, even mother-in-laws get a good press in this story. As someone said, sometimes God calms the storm, sometimes he lets the storm rage, and sometimes he calms you. Or maybe always he calms you. So let's zoom in on the journey of a lifetime back from Moab. It's time to return. Naomi has clearly recognized that it's important for her to return. And you see that uh, in the passage in uh, uh, verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people, well, there's a surprise. (laughs) That's why they should have stayed, but I think... By providing food for them, she and his da- their, her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home. It was a bittersweet experience to leave and to go back to Israel, to Bethlehem, the house of bread, that's what Bethlehem means, in order to set up home once again. And here on the journey... Naomi, the mother-in-law, decides that actually these two girls would be better off staying in Moab and not returning with her. And uh, we read, Dara read to us the conversation that had happened. See, they've lost their husbands and they were about to lose the friendship and love, in real terms, of the woman that they had been living with who had become so close to them. He couldn't hop on a plane back to Moab and visit for the week or for the day. Once she'd gone, she would have gone. There was no FaceTiming or even Zooming to go and have conversation with uh, their mother-in-law. Parting is such sweet sorrow, said Juliet to Romeo, and this could have been the case in this story. But it didn't turn out like that, did it? Because somewhere between Moab and Bethlehem, when they had this conversation, and Ruth and Orpha have to decide what they're going to do, having been told uh, uh, strongly by Naomi that they should go back home, we find Ruth chooses to stay the course. Now, I've spent some time wondering about why that was. What was it about Naomi that caused Ruth to come to this conclusion that uh, we can read in verse 16? Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. How does she come to that conclusion? She didn't have a Bible that she could open up and come to the the verses that might describe that and challenge her to stay or to go with, with Naomi. And I think it might have been one of three things. It might have been the character that uh, that Ruth witnessed in her mother-in-law. It might have been, secondly, her consistency, the way that Naomi lived her life. And thirdly, it might have been that Naomi was really impressed upon the girls, the importance of the God of Israel, and what the God of Israel had achieved with his people since the fall, 
through the story of Noah and on and on and on to the day. I do think it was all three of those things. I wonder if she, like the mother of Jesus in my kind of supposed introduction, had often sat down with her daughters and told again the incredible stories of the God of Israel, the exile, the exodus, and so on and so forth. The Bible says, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. And that doesn't simply mean the written word of Christ, but the communicated word of Christ by the power of God's Holy Spirit. I think Ruth must have been touched and challenged and changed by the way in which Naomi communicated to her. But I think it must have been about her life as well, the consistency in her life, the way in which she demonstrated the love of God despite her grief and despite her uh, troubles, this mother-in-law must have shown what it was. Like Paul puts it, we're pressed in on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned. We get kicked down, but we are not destroyed. We get kicked down, we get up again. <laughs> there was something about the consistency of her walk with God that must have spoken powerfully to Naomi, uh, to Ruth. But maybe more than anything else, it all began to add up with the character of this woman. When we read on we, when she gets back to Bethlehem, it sounds as though she's a bit depressed and distressed by what has happened. But within it, you see the hope and the purpose that uh, has been, is being discovered. I see how this woman, Naomi, I'm supposed to be focusing on Ruth, but Naomi's part of the, the story. Naomi must have spoken of her love for God by the way that she lived. When I was uh, kind of putting that around my head and thinking that through, uh, I watched the video for, or the film for Tuesday nights, Disciples Should Be Explored, and it, in part of that, it went through that very thing. And this is what they say in the video. When things don't pan out as we hope, it's because God in his goodness has other ideas. In Christ, thwarted plans are the beginning of something better. That is so full of hope, isn't it? And encouragement for Ruth and Naomi, but for us this evening as our life is in the hands of God, and as we live as though our lives were in the hands of God, and that development of our character and perseverance and trust in God is seen by those around us. And so she says, your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go, because there was something so appealing and attractive in the character and life of this mother-in-law. I'm only using the expression mother-in-law because I keep forgetting it's Naomi. <laughs> but you know who I'm talking about. And when I thought about that uh, development of her character, the consistency of her life and her communication, it seems to me what Naomi was was a living example of what Paul wrote it to uh, the Corinthian church when he said, 
follow my example as I follow Christ. In other words, everything you see of Jesus in me, then follow that. Do that yourself. Be committed to that. Experience that. Insofar as I follow Christ. I don't think he was saying follow me lock, stock and barrel because no one's that perfect. No one's that much like Jesus. But as much as we are, I would dare to say that we ought to be in a place where we can say, well, friend, follow me as I follow Christ. Because by so doing, I'll be follow, you'll be following Jesus. This came into some sharp focus for me when our queen died. Because it seemed to me that from many of the things that we said, were said and were read, and from the Archbishop of Canterbury's sermon on, on the day of the funeral, that there were attributes of Her Ma- Late Majesty the Queen that we can follow because she followed Christ. Particularly that idea of servanthood and her humility in her servanthood uh, and duty towards the peoples that she had been given the responsibility of reigning over. But much closer to hand and to home was our late sister, Jill Ball. I had in mind saying something of this uh, uh, before yesterday, But for those of you who were here for that uh, Thanksgiving and memorial service, will I think, and people have said this to me, be blown away with the way in which family and friends and her colleague from Ecuador was, uh, was able to testify to the incredible nature and commitment and servanthood and life of Jill Ball. I guess most of us uh, would have known her only in certain ways and certain circumstances, some more than others. I I do remember one Sunday evening walking out of here with Jill and uh, talking about the service and and things. And then I said, will I see you tomorrow morning at uh, morning prayer? And quick as a flash, Jill said, if the Lord wakes me, I'll be there. I don't think she came. (laughs) Do you know, if I said that, it would be an excuse. It wouldn't be a reason. But I really sensed as she said that, that this was the godliness of this woman. She was so in touch with her Lord that if if he really wanted her at morning prayer, she'd be there. But if if he let her sleep in, so be it. I think we would have to recognize that here was someone whose example we could follow as she followed Christ. I wish I could show you all of the testimonies yesterday, the eulogies from her two sons that described so much of her character, her Christian character. I didn't really accredit that but to, to Christ, but that's what, she was, that's what they were describing. It was quite something. So here we are with someone whose example maybe was somewhat like Naomi's that caused Ruth to this commitment and to the end of the journey that brought enormous promise. 
Not bitterness, though there was a time for that. Not even hunger, though that had been the cause of their leaving uh, Bethlehem and going to Moab. Not even Ruth gleaning in the field so that they didn't go hungry. Uh, you can read that in the next chapter or so. Um, we haven't, there's not time to go through the whole of her story. But to note this, that when God is in control, no matter what happens, there is no empty future. There is always promise. There is always going to be hope. And in this case, it led to a romance. It, meant, it led to love being one again. Now, if you read the story, it's a bit strange by our way of doing things. Culturally and religiously, it's very different from what you and I have or would, ex would expect to happen. But it was, it was consistent with the way things were. And ultimately, uh, this man Boaz uh, uh, worked in a very honourable way to take the hand of Ruth and become her husband. And so the story comes towards its end with a wedding and a birth. A wedding and a son. Ruth became the great-great-grandmother of the great King David. David, in whose line Jesus was born, as you read in Matthew chapter, chapter 1. One of only two women in the genealogy. So let me turn you to it in Matthew chapter 1. Salmon, or Salmon, perhaps it's not Salmon, it's Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Remember June the other night, the other Sunday night, talking about Rahab? Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. I hope, I hope you can sense, in a, in a way, my excitement about the amazing fact of this genealogy because I've always thought that was unbelievably amazing. I remember taking school assemblies uh, way back in the day and I would be talking about the story of Ruth and I would try and link it with the fact, hey, she was part of the family of Jesus going back centuries. How amazing is that? How amazing is that the story of Jesus is linked intrinsically to this story of Ruth, not a Jew who came from Moab with Naomi, because her husband, their husbands had died and became part of this huge story and the impact of that story is eternal. It wasn't just in that century. It's enough to be a person of character and of consequence in a century. That's amazing in itself. But this was in centuries and for centuries to come. In fact, beyond centuries, because it's eternal. Jesus was born 
into that family line. So where, I ask, in the narrative of Ruth, might you find yourself tonight? How might we individually be mirroring or finding ourselves in such a story? Alastair McIntyre puts it like this, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? And there's enough of them in here, isn't there, to be a part of. To be the kind of people who live out and dwell on and respond to and are impacted by the stories, the narratives that we find in our Bibles. So I want to encourage you and suggest to you that Ruth's story could in some part be your story. I wonder where God is taking you in your life. I wonder whether he's having to deal with you gently or persuasively or, this is a tough word, restoratively. I got it out. What does God want to do? in your life as you look back over the last year, decade, or more. I wonder if the Lord may have, seen, have seemed to take away from you things that you thought were the most precious of all. And I wonder if God, like Job, wants to give you a double blessing. Remember that story of Job? After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. That's chapter 42, and the previous chapters describe to us a really tough, tough time. What does God want to do as he brings us out of tough times? Brings us out of difficult, challenging circumstances. Maybe this narrative is one in which you can find hope and purpose for your personal experience. Or could it be that you've taken some big life-changing decisions recently, you still don't know whether you did the right thing or the wrong thing. It's really changed the direction of things, but somehow you just have a little bit of, of kind of, is it, did I do the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? Am I in the right place? Do you know what this story says to me? Is that if we're seeking to walk with God, we can rest assured that God can turn even our wrong choices to his good and good end. Even our disappointments and our challenges can result in his greater purposes that mean we find what God wants for us now despite what's happened in the past. And thirdly, if you recognize those, those three, three possibles, it might just be that you need to take Ruth's words on your lips again this evening. Perhaps you need to come back to God because you've drifted or never come to him. But you know that he's, God loves you. God has a purpose for you. You know people around you or an individual around you who displays the characteristics that we talked about in, in, in Jill, the Queen, and that are laid out in Scripture. 
Somehow you need to say to that person and to God, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. So is it, first of all, this is your story and God needs to correct or take you forward in his purposes and bless you abundantly more than you could ask or imagine? Could it be that you're in the midst of a decision or you've made a decision and you need to rest assured that God will go with you in that decision? And thirdly, might it be that you're someone who needs to say, your God is my God. Your God is my God. Where you go, I will go. Where you show me the example of Christ, I want to become more like that. Let's pray. With three